1: Yes, indeed. I have many shovels full of great information to uh, send your direction today. And I'm not doing this because I just happen to know all the answers to life's problems. That's uh, far from the reality. I'm just a guy trying to make my way, but like you, I realize that this all matters. We are part of something momentous that is happening right now. History is being made, and you and I have a role to play, but we have to be willing to stand up and be counted at a time where our voice is really needed to speak the truth. And that means even if our voice is shaking, we still speak the truth. So thank you for being part of our audience today. I uh, want to thank my sponsors who make this possible on a daily basis. They include Dixie Chiropractic, also HSLAmmo.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, MoticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and also GovernYourCrypto.com. Now, if you're fairly new to the show, you may not have heard me talk much about the fourth turning. But this is this is a way of looking at history, not as a linear, you know, chart with, you know, hash marks that show this date and this name and this event, but rather as a cyclical thing, meaning that there are observable cycles. And Strauss and Howe, when they wrote their book, The Fourth Turning, and published it back in 1997 identified something which they refer to as a seculum. Now, this is actually a Roman word, but it's essentially, it's seasons that play out over the course of basically a generation, between 80 to 120 years. And we've seen this play out a number of times in American history. We are in the turning, which is like a turning of the seasons, which is called a fourth turning. And this is where there's an awful lot of crisis and there's upheaval. We're talking things like civic decay, huge economic upheaval. War is usually part of a fourth turning. And if you look back on the Great Depression and World War II, the Civil War and Reconstruction, you look at the Revolutionary War and the the founding period, these are examples of fourth turnings in American history. So the good news is, hey, we survive. In some cases, we actually come out better on the other side of that winter than we did going into it. But as you can see from the events I've mentioned, not always. I want to share with you an article from Dr. Donald W. Miller talking about how America in the 2020s is in its most dangerous decade. I only mention the fourth turning because he brings it up against that uh, in that context. He says the 2021 to 2030 decade is stacking up to be the most dangerous one in America's 32 decade history. Wow, that's—I mean—that's kind of impressive. The United States of America, he says, emerged from World War II a manufacturing colossus. During, <coughs> excuse me, during the war, it built 141 aircraft carriers, all types; 203 submarines; 62,000 bombers, twelve thousand seven hundred of them B-17s; eighty-eight thousand tanks, and four atom bombs. One atom bomb that used uranium was dropped on Hiroshima, August 6, 1945. A second plutonium one was dropped on Nagasaki, August 9. Two more plutonium bombs had been built but not used when on August 15, Japan surrendered. The U.S. dollar replaced the British pound sterling as the world's reserve currency and became a petrodollar when the Saudis and other Arab oil nations agreed to accept only U.S. dollars for their oil. When the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, the USA became the world's sole superpower. America now, however, must share that status with China and Russia. Over the last 30 years, Russia, shorn of its Soviet socialist republics, and China both have also become superpowers, militarily and technologically. China's fast becoming the world's largest economy, reflecting its fourfold greater population, 1.4 billion people, compared with the U.S. population of 335 million. Both economic and military dangers confront America, which makes the 21 to 2021 to 2030 decade particularly dangerous. So he starts with economic collapse. U.S. dollar bills were once redeemable in gold with the avowal in gold coin payable to the bearer on demand, printed this way on them. Gold was money at $20.67 per troy ounce. People used gold coins to make purchases and pay debts up until 1933, when a presidential executive order made it illegal for U.S. citizens to own gold, except for collectible numismatic gold coins and gold jewelry. Foreign countries and their central banks could still exchange U.S. dollars for gold at $35 an ounce. Now, America had 21,770 tons of gold reserves when World War II ended. With gold priced at $35 an ounce, this large amount of gold backed only 17% of the country's $147 billion money supply. By 1971, U.S. gold reserves had dropped to less than 10,000 tons. This amount backed only 1% of the country's expanding money supply, rendering default inevitable. Now, the U.S. government completely suspended convertibility of U.S. dollars into gold on August fifteenth, 1971, turning the U.S. dollar into a fiat currency, a government-issued currency not backed by any physical commodities, notably gold or silver. And here Dr. Miller says, Americans are increasingly suffering severe inflation caused by a substantial increase in the supply of money. Gold has gone from $35 per ounce in 1971 To $1,950 per ounce now. So, priced in gold, the American dollar has lost 98.3% of its value, its purchasing power, in just the last 50 years. John Williams' newsletter, Shadow Government Statistics, calculates inflation the way the Fed did in the 1980s. Williams reports that the March 2022 year-to-year consumer price index inflation rate was actually 16.8%, not the Fed's now-measured 8.5% rate. And this March's 16.8% inflation rate tops the 14.8% high set in March of 1980. This is the highest one in years, close behind the 17.6% rate set in June of 1947. Dealing with inflation in the early 1980s, Fed Chair Paul Volcker reduced the money supply by drastically raising interest rates, boosting the prime lending rate to 21.5% and the 10-year treasury yield to 15.5%. US money supply has grown from 685 billion in 1971 to 21.84 trillion now. I know these just sound like numbers, right? But if you can see this on a chart, it's it's mind-blowing. It's absolutely incredible how far the, the money supply has, has increased. <clears throat> so raising interest rates to this 15 to 20 percent level now would absolutely court global economic collapse. US, world, or U.S. gold reserves rather are reported to be somewhere around 8,000 tons. But half of that amount or more may be leased out and therefore not easily retrievable. It's been decades since the physical existence of American gold has been independently checked and validated. So we're still getting a lot of, trust me, it's it's still there in Fort Knox. Wink, wink. Russia and China recently announced that they collectively hold 34,000 tons of gold, 12,000 tons in Russia, and 22,000 tons in China. The Russian invasion of Ukraine is dismantling the U.S. petrodollar-dominated global financial system, and with American-led economic sanctions blocking transactions in dollars, Russia will now only sell its petroleum products to unfriendly European nations in rubles or in gold. Buyers in China can use their yuan and in India, their rupee, to buy Russian oil. But the U.S. dollar's role as a world reserve currency and petrodollar is now coming to an end. In weaponized dollar may explode in America's face. Financial analyst Brian McGlinchey identifies the following consequences resulting from a dethroned dollar. Tell me if any of these sound familiar. Costlier imports and rising prices, higher government borrowing costs, higher rates on mortgages, credit cards, and auto loans, rising deficits, higher taxes, decreased spending, and or runaway inflation, and the end of prosperity created by the Fed's printing press. Gold a Swiss gold expert Egon von Greyers predicts that the dollar will cease to exist within five years and that the world will see terrifying hyperinflation followed by a deflationary depression. Noting that throughout history, all currencies have become extinct. It will be the dollar's fate next. In their written language, by the way, the Chinese character for money and for gold is the same. So this is just the first part of his article. There's another part that is, is worth our examination. We'll get to that in just a few minutes because we're coming up on the break. But would you agree that we are in a somewhat dangerous decade? And I don't share this with you with the idea that, boy, you better be pretty scared. I don't see your knees trembling because you're so terrified of what's happening. This just happens to be an unpleasant reality that has to be faced if we are to move forward and to to do what we need to do. And by that, I mean, stand up, improve your position, be true to what you know to be truth, And resist all urges to become, you know, somebody else's pet on a leash. We'll talk more about that in just a few moments. If you want to check out this article, it's linked in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. You can also subscribe to receive my show notes in your email on a daily basis.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I may have mentioned lifesavingfood.com as one of my sponsors. I would strongly encourage you take a click on their website link, which I provide in my show notes, and just take a look around. I'm not saying, boy, you better buy stuff right now or you're going to be so sorry. But right now, everything you see on the website is in stock which means, you know, you have time to, to take some very basic preparations, or you can do, you can shoot the moon if you want to. If you need to get a full year supply for a family of four, you can do that. It's really up to you, but if there was ever a time to start taking this kind of stuff seriously, it's now. And the sooner you get started, the more consistently you can continue to build your self-reliance. Lifesavingfood.com is there to help you do that. Please check them out in my show notes under sponsors. So I'm sharing this article from Dr. Donald W. Miller Jr. And it's titled, America in the 2020s is in its most dangerous decade. Now he talked about the economic ramifications of, you know, the dollar losing its status as world uh, reserve currency. We're looking at it uh, no longer being the petrodollar or no longer having a petrodollar rather and that's uh, that's pretty intense and the in- intense amount of spending and the creation of money i know that uh, the the phrase that's gone out the memo that went out to the press and from the political classes the putin price hike and man they keep repeating this like we're a bunch of little children now we have to chant this in unison with them putin has nothing to do with the fact that you are paying so much for gas for groceries for, for everything It has everything to do with the creation of money out of thin air, which in turn dilutes the buying power of every single dollar that's out there. That's it. Putin had nothing to do with that. This was done by official policymakers within your own government. So think twice before you give too much allegiance to them. Let's talk about nuclear war. Dr. Miller says the war in Ukraine carries a substantial risk of developing into a nuclear World War III. The American media uniformly demonizes president, uh, the president of Russia, Vladimir Putin, for his unprovoked invasion of a peaceful neighboring country. That's their words. The U.S. and NATO so far are only sending Ukraine weapons, not troops, and they've declined to invoke a no-fly zone. The U.S., Russia, U.K., France, and China are acknowledged nuclear-weapon states. Israel, Pakistan and North Korea also possess nuclear weapons and five NATO countries, Belgium, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands and Turkey house nuclear weapons. Ukraine also had nukes when it was part of the Soviet Union. So there are now some 13,000 nuclear weapons in the world and the U.S. and Russia share equally 90 percent of them. Russia's Air Force, for example, has 79 bombers carrying more than 800 nuclear armed cruise missiles. And its Navy has 12 submarines carrying some 600 nuclear-armed ballistic missiles. So a World War III will most likely employ nukes. Now, the major risk factor for World War III going nuclear is that America is undergoing a fourth turning. The concept of generational turnings posits that American history, or that human history rather, has a seasonal, cyclical nature. Each cycle is around 80 years long. And there's a table enclosed in this article that shows the four cycles that have occurred in American history so far. Each cycle has four seasons called turnings. Fourth turnings are called, are named crisis, especially since they're associated with war. The American Revolution happened in the fourth turning of the country's initial revolutionary cycle, followed by the Civil War and World War II in the fourth turnings of subsequent cycles. The American Revolution had 25,000 military and civilian deaths the Civil War, 750,000 deaths, and 85 million people died from all causes in World War II. At that rate, billions of people will die in a nuclear World War III. Now, Dr. Miller says, I was born during the last fourth turning in Honolulu, Hawaii, where my dad, a Navy surgeon, was stationed 15 months before the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. We must do everything possible to prevent a World War III. The demonization of Vladimir Putin must stop. Lou Rockwell writes, Putin is not the maniac they portray him to be, but rather a cautious statesman pursuing Russia's legitimate security interests. Oliver Stone does a great job uncovering Vladimir Putin's true nature in Oliver Stone's The Putin Interviews. Now, the Ukraine war actually started in 2014 with the CIA, U.S. State Department-sponsored Maiden Revolution, which overthrew democratically elected and pro-Russian Prime Minister Viktor Yanukovych. Since then, the Ukrainian neo-Nazi Azov Battalion has been intermittently shelling people in Donbass, the industrial Russian-speaking region in southeastern Ukraine, killing thousands. The final straw for Putin and Russia was Ukraine's announced intention to join NATO. Having NATO's nukes placed in Ukraine and pointed at Moscow 450 miles away, is like the Soviet Union installing nuclear-armed ICBMs in Cuba in 1962, pointed at Washington, D.C., 1140 miles away. The United States could not tolerate that, and the world came to the brink of nuclear war until the missiles were removed. Neither will Putin and Russia tolerate them being installed in hostile, neighboring Ukraine. Donald Miller says Americans must back away from confronting Russia in Ukraine, stop sending Ukraine weapons, and drop the economic sanctions imposed on Russia. That might also help the U.S. avoid an economic collapse. Finally, he says we must heed Albert Einstein. The release of atomic power has changed everything except our way of thinking. The solution to this problem lies in the heart of mankind. If only I had known I should have become a watchmaker. I mean, that's pretty sobering. And I know for some people, well, that just sounds like Russian apologistics. No, how can you take Putin's side in this? You know, I don't know that uh, taking a side is, is wise when you're dealing not with, you know, black and white or, you know, good guys and bad guys, but actually just different shades of gray between these nations. What's going on in Ukraine? That is a beef between Russia and Ukraine. And isn't it interesting that the sanctions and the the pressure being put on Russia is actually backfiring now? It's an interesting concept, and I know it's not hard for, it's not easy rather for people to accept because we're kind of being whipped up into war fervor. I think it's definitely worth considering though. So let's talk about uh, next, why are the feds clinging to their mask mandate? I really man, I was just praying that all this COVID Mania was behind us. Dan Sanchez, in a piece written for the Foundation for Economic Education, notes that bureaucrats cling to power. That's their institutional predisposition. So it was no surprise on Wednesday of this week when the Department of Justice appealed the recent federal court ruling striking down the mask mandate imposed on mass transportation by the Centers for Disease Control. He says, as the appeal demonstrates, governments are especially reluctant to give up emergency powers. When they do... The relinquishment is grudging and only partial. That's a big reason why government keeps getting bigger. As economist Robert Higgs showed us in his book, Crisis and Leviathan, since the early 20th century, the U.S. government has exploited every national emergency to seize emergency powers. After the crisis subsides, government power recedes, but never all the way back to pre-crisis levels. In this way, the federal government ratchets up its power at the expense of our liberty, crisis after crisis. This ratchet effect, as as Higgs termed it, is on vivid display in airports especially. There, the travel mask mandate persisted long after the pandemic panic subsided and many other COVID policies were rolled back. And if the DOJ appeal succeeds, it may return and linger even longer. He says that wretched, ratchet effect is also manifest in the post-9-11 airport security policies that the TSA continues to enforce more than two decades after the crisis that spawned them. And a curious aspect of these policies is how seemingly petty they are. Why is the government so adamant about travelers removing their shoes at security and wearing masks? The effectiveness of such measures has been shown to be highly dubious at best. Moreover, such compelled performances of security theater and hygiene theater don't even seem to provide much material benefit to the government. What's the point of ratcheting up that kind of power? He says he suspects it's the mass inculcation of obedience. They're part and parcel of a broader obedience theater. Humiliating compulsory gestures like removing your shoes and wearing your mask; those are obeisances, symbolic ritual acts of self-abasement and submission. In other words, it's not about keeping you safe or healthy. It's about showing you who is boss.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to thank Dixie Chiropractic for being one of my sponsors. That's Dr. Ward Wagner. I'd like you to check out their website at DixieChiro.com. There's actually a link in my show notes under sponsors. DixieChiro.com. Specifically, there are three groups of people that I would like to be aware of Dixie Chiropractic. And this is for those of you who live in southern Utah. If you are dealing with car accident injuries, talk to Dr. Wagner. If you're dealing with bulging herniated discs, check out their $99 intro special with two treatments plus massage, and if you're dealing with neuropathy, here's a $99 Calmare treatment plus massage. Go to com for more information when you talk to them, when you're getting your appointment set up. Please mention that uh, you are checking them out and you're doing business with them because you heard about them on this program. Well, you know, I know there's a lot of stuff that's going on that seems really scary, right? The first couple of things we talked about here, oh, my goodness, <laughs> nuclear war, economic collapse. Ah, but there are some reasons to feel positive, and and one of the things that I'm starting to feel positive about is I'm getting a sense, and maybe it's just a false sense, okay? This is me whistling past the graveyard, perhaps, but it really does start to feel like the American people, their common sense is starting to overtake the gaslighting and the lies of the political class and their media narrative managers. Got an article here from Ron Wright, which says the great reset is coming with the midterm elections. Oh, wait, are we talking a different one than the Klaus Schwab reset? Yes, this isn't going to be the reset the elites are expecting. Here's how Ron White puts it. He says, the real reset is coming, as Victor Davis Hanson writes, on the upcoming midterm elections. Here's a quote from Victor Davis Hanson's article. In truth, we are about to see a radical reset of the current reset. It will be a different sort of transformation than the elites are expecting and one that they should greatly fear. In the November 2022 midterms, we are likely to see a historic no to the orthodox left-wing agenda that has resulted in unsustainable inflation, unaffordable energy, war, and humiliation abroad, spiraling crime, racial hostility, as well as arrogant defiance from those who deliberately enacted these disastrous policies. End quote. I mean, I don't get out that much, but the people I talk to who are awake... And aware and concerned, they're also very motivated. So I I tend to think there may be something to this. In this case, uh, Ron Wright says, The public has been marinated in false narratives and disinformation spread by our elite ruling class. And echoed by the dominant media. For example, climate change, more green energy and its consequences, and Putin inflation. Just to name a few. Then there's the COVID-19 origin and authoritarian mandates fostered by the spurious meme, follow the science. The Russian collusion narrative, and there was no election fraud in the 2020 election. Uh, Voter suppression, wokeism, equity speak. And don't forget gender fluidity and grooming. The mask mandates by woke school boards supported by teachers unions. Cop shooting black men and critical race theory, including the divisive memes of white supremacy, domestic terrorism, systemic racism, and many other crises de jour. Now, he says these false narratives can be very pervasive when embedded in many people's minds. For example, he says, I was recently in Southern California. A Gen Z young man was discussing American government and politics with two older British men in the hotel lounge. As I left, I mentioned Hunter Biden's laptop from hell and the election fraud in the 2020 election. The discussion was civil, but the young man was wed to the progressive narrative that this was disinformation and wasn't open to debate. Our elite ruling class, the Marxists, the globalists, big tech, the mainstream media and the deep state used these crises to justify authoritarian government actions under public health and safety emergencies and to interfere with the 2020 election compare with French elections, for instance, and to destabilize our society, culture, and government. These actors will strike back as empowered by the elite. Big tech and the government continue to censor any who would dare question their orthodoxy, violating the inalienable rights enshrined in the Constitution. These actors have robbed the public treasury of billions of dollars in broad daylight. These actors seek and are driven by retaining and gaining more power and money the government is too corrupt to prosecute these perp's in other words good for thee but not for me the fbi and the doj are hunting dogs that will not hunt unless directed by their handlers in other words targeting the insurrectionists of january 6th and the parents of the loudon or the parents versus the loudon county school board versus the treatment of blm and antifa rioters and thugs are sheep dogs have gone rogue or <clears throat> discredited and replaced by the secret police the stasi al-Sal elinsky at the local level a brilliant move by george soros was pouring money into the election of ultra progressive woke district attorneys who will not prosecute and or release dangerous felons into the community with no cash bail let the bad dudes out to run amuck and strike fear in the people while at the same time pillorying the cops People who are scared to venture out of their homes will often defer to authoritarian actions by local governments in exchange for law and order. And the result is a two-tier system of justice that violates the founding principle of our criminal justice system, which is equal justice for all, no one is above the law, and the rule of law, and not men. A criminal enterprise, if not a soft coup by these actors, has been ongoing for at least since the Obama administration using an illegal usurpation of power by treason, mutiny, bribery, frauds, and thefts of public funds and cover-ups and obstruction of justice committed by a criminal enterprise. Joe Biden's policy reversals are detrimental to the strategic interests of the U.S. Why? Well, there are reasons to suspect Biden is co-opted and or blackmailed by foreign and domestic enemies. These enemies are the Marxists, globalists, the Communist Party of China, the Russian and Ukrainian oligarchs, the Iranians. Biden's policy failures, the outright violations of the Constitution and federal laws can't just be attributed to the utter stupidity of Biden and his administration, but are intentional. Biden failed to defend our southern border and engaged with Iranian mullahs to the detriment of our strategic interests and allies in the Middle East. He covered for China as the likely source of the COVID-19 virus. He disbanded the DOJ-FBI unit that roots out CCP espionage agents in academia. Finally, Biden went soft on Russia, he shut down our domestic oil and gas production, killed the Keystone Pipeline, green-lighted Russia's Nord Stream 2 Pipeline, put the skids on Israel's East Med Gas Pipeline, and delayed Russian sanctions and arming Ukraine before the Russian invasion. Americans had grown weary of the war in Afghanistan with its mission creep. It was time to leave. Biden and his administration did leave, an example of how not to do it. The disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, abandoning Bagram Air Force Base and leaving it for the Chinese. All the while, Hunter Biden was raking in millions from the Chinese, Russian, and Ukrainian oligarchs for no credible purpose other than gaining access to Joe Biden. The Biden administration's policy reversals backed the U.S. into a shooting war between Russians and Ukrainians, likely to escalate. So is Joe Biden now toast to those that foisted him on us? Were these policy reversals the result of undue influence on Joe Biden by enemies of the U.S., both foreign and domestic? I know that's a long list of bad news, right? But here's the point. Ron Wright says, we are at a tipping point with the coming midterms. The lies of the elite at all are catching up with the common sense of the American people. Victor Davis Hanson puts it this way. In the November 2022 midterms, we are likely to see a historic no to the orthodox left-wing agenda that has resulted in unsustainable inflation, unaffordable energy, war and humiliation abroad, spiraling crime, racial hostility, as well as arrogant defiance from those who deliberately enacted these disastrous policies. The prophets of the New World Order sowed the wind, and they will soon reap the whirlwind of an angry public worn out by elite incompetence, arrogance, and ignorance. Now, I want to tell you, I want to believe that yes, there is a turning point that approaches. But I want to share a concern with you that I have, and that is, that turning point cannot be purely at a political level. Let me explain. In other words, we'll vote those rascals out and put in rascals of our own—one, rascals that we can count on. If that's the motivation that's active, that's making us active and, and making us, uh, you know, start to to move our feet. <clears throat> we are doomed to failure because the biggest problem isn't just who is in office the biggest problem lies in the heart of the individual Americans who make up our society their detachment from the principles and practices of liberty oh does that sound like you are you judging people Brian look I'm, I'm judging myself along with anybody else but I think we have forgotten what it takes to be a free people. I think that uh, when people speak about liberty, when they speak about, you know, the principles and practices of liberty, it's as if they're speaking a foreign language. And if we bring the uh, divine dynamic into it that the uh, founding generation looked to, remember that whole with a firm reliance on divine providence? We keep God out of the equation. I don't think we stand a chance of succeeding. With God's help, I think there's a very good chance of success. The question is, can we humble ourselves enough as a nation to actually put our trust in God?
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. HSLammo.com is one of my sponsors here. And if you enjoy the shooting sports or if you're just if you're serious about becoming skilled at arms, ammo is the way that you turn your money into skill. It's called practice. So if you need high quality, new or remanufactured ammunition in the common calibers, please click on the link for HSLammo.com in my uh, show links at the Brian Hyde show.com. Reach out to Spencer Worthington. He's the founder and the owner of HSL Ammo. He's a great guy to know. Maybe, in fact, you go out to the shooting sports park, you might even run into him. But if you're going to give somebody your business, please let it be HSL So I want to keep on with this theme of perhaps there is a turning point ahead with the 2022 midterm elections. And, and I ask this not out of a sense of, you know, I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer here, wah, wah, but I think it's very clear when you look at how the science has changed, right? The, well, uh, come to think of it, uh, if you're looking at these polls, it appears that uh, we can drop many of these mandates. And, <laughs> wow, Philadelphia, they, they reinstated the mask mandate earlier this week only to drop it yesterday because it's, it's clear this is not playing well with people. Anthony Fauci was was on the news yesterday looking like like an 84-year-old hipster in his uh, distressed jeans and his uh, his cute sneakers you know i mean he was he's looking like he was going on yo MTV raps or something but he's trying to make the case of, well this was this never should have been something before the courts this is a CDC issue not not a not a legal issue Trying to redirect our thoughts away from the idea that, well, actually what the CDC does and any of the powers the CDC exercises are subject to the courts in the sense that the courts are supposed to protect us from the arbitrary use of power. Which is exactly what this judge did earlier this week in striking down that mask mandate on public transportation. The dangerous thing to me, and this is the question in my mind, is that the political class is operating from a position of great weakness. They can see that people are fed up. They can see that people are, are starting to, to get um, courage to stand up and say, no, I'm not going to do what you tell me. I'm not going to put this stupid mask back on my face because it's so clear that, well, you know, you have to wear this mask to protect people from the illness. Unless, of course, you're eating something or drinking something, a process we could spread out over five hours. Really? OK. You don't need to wear the mask when you're sitting at your table in the restaurant, just when you're walking across the restaurant. People aren't buying that this is, is any way, anything other than hygiene theater. And to to me, the danger that, that we're facing is that the, uh, the elite, the political class knows they're about to be soundly rejected and sent packing. Which kind of has me wondering out loud, are we even going to see midterm elections? Is there going to be some kind of emergency? We'll have to suspend these elections until things have calmed down a bit which they will make sure never happens. Dugan um, Dugan Flanagan, sorry, if I'm going to get his name, I might as well get it right, says, we are witnessing the last gasps of poser politics. Now, he starts out with an observation by psychiatrist Seth D. Norholm, who says, dictators see themselves as very special people, deserving of admiration, and consequently, they have difficulty empathizing with the feelings and needs of others. They also tend to behave with a vindictiveness often observed in narcissistic personality disorder. In other words, they are nuts, and dangerous, and in power. Now, Norholm, who is currently Scientific Director and NeuroCast at Wayne State University's Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, and Dr. Sam Hundley, now a program analyst with the U.S. Department of Agriculture, wrote in 2016 that highly narcissistic individuals require excessive admiration to remain happy, and are more likely to try to punish those individuals who negatively evaluated their work. The dictatorial nature of climate extremists who repeat the mantra that Earth has only X number of years or weeks left to take super drastic actions or we're all doomed is evidenced by both their falsification and manipulation of historical records and their apocalyptic demands, which have been quite successful. Fear is a powerful weapon. Resistance, they insist, is futile. And those who resist are worse than murderers. They're planet killers. And despite the outrageous rhetoric, most Americans gulled by a complicit media and education establishment did not see just how serious they were about wrecking the nation. Nor did anyone expect that a doddering old fool would become the mouthpiece of their wrath or the architect of their assault on America and the West. I mean, come on, nobody condemns China for being the world's largest consumer of coal. That is, nobody noticed until the same governors, mayors, federal officials, and even news anchors and commentators who want us to believe in a coming climate catastrophe also forced people to shut their businesses, stay in their homes, lose their jobs, keep their children out of school, and not even walk outside or move around in their homes without wearing a muzzle. Then the poll numbers began coming in and the would-be dictators and their yes-persons began to realize they had only a brief window to seize full control of American and Western society. Then came the complications of a shooting war and other international distractions, which, to their dismay, did not turn them into heroes. They knew they must, like Putin in Ukraine, secure total victory before the feared tsunami drowned some, but hardly all, the rats who were feasting on our bones in the nation's capital. So they tighten the screws with a ridiculous Securities and Exchange Commission proposal to require companies to evaluate the completely hypothetical climate risk in nearly every business business decision. And then there's the California bill, ostensibly about social media transparency, that includes provisions about, that would make government the sole determinant of what is acceptable and unacceptable as medical research and reporting. So doctors whose methods actually heal people Would go to prison, as would their patients, or something like that. The point is, people now see the correlation. The same government and media long claimed that Hunter's laptop was Russian disinformation and punished anyone who provided evidence to the contrary. They also excoriated anyone who denied that the now discredited Steele dossier was factual or who demonstrated using evidence that all the scary climate models are incorrect. Meanwhile, Illinois has joined the chorus of leftist states in setting target dates to ban fossil fuels. Other states, even auto companies, intend to force the entire nation to buy inefficient, inexpensive uh, electric vehicles or to take public transportation. Even in sparsely populated rural areas, let them eat yellow cake. At the same time, they insist on shuttering the majority of the nation's existing power plants. They also demand we turn in our beloved gas appliances and furnaces and spend thousands to retrofit our homes with all-electric appliances and heat pumps. Some billionaires are pushing for an end to livestock raising and forcing people to eat frankenfood. Others say it's okay for wind turbines and solar arrays to kill birds, bats, and other wildlife. Their screechy demands that Justice Clarence Thomas resign or be impeached further show their desperation. Thomas is targeted for being black and also for heading up the conservative court majority that's thwarting many of their grandiose plans. Failing that, many argue, the White House should just ignore the court and its decisions. And just as one former president told us that his medical plan would save people $2,500 a year, the same crowd claims with no evidence that an all-electric society powered solely by wind, solar, and geothermal will save family thousands a year in energy costs. Well, Maybe they're right because we won't have cars, air conditioning after the coming ban, or other conveniences that will no longer be acceptable for Americans to enjoy. But maybe not to worry. Al Sharpton may be the most unlikely person to have nailed the reason the nightmare will soon be over. Speaking on MSNBC, Sharpton predicted a Republican landslide this fall because the people in power in Washington don't live in the real world. Sharpton sees even lifelong urban Democrats recognizing that neither right-wing elitist billionaires, largely the GOP establishment, nor left-wing guys that don't understand our life on the ground, have served their communities. That life for his constituencies is living in fear of crime, living as a result of inflation that's killing us in many parts of the country. Sharpton says we need gas to go to work. So if people of color and even white Democrats slammed by the woke policies of a sleepy-headed dear leader leave the plantation and either stay home or vote GOP, the reign of terror may come to a crashing halt, except in California, New York, New Jersey, Washington, and any other states still submissive to the woke dictatorship. But if soft racism, classism, or just me, myself, and I-ism remains the GOP's Achilles heel, All bets are off, even if Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are deposed from leadership. Truth be told, it will take a Washington crossing the Delaware or Gideon's Army moment to seal the deal and end the nightmare brought on by political posers, whose policies typically produce a result opposite of what is promised. It will take the people awakening to see their common interests under assault by the narcissistic, power-mad elitists who think themselves better. It will take a rebirth of neighborhoods and people from all walks working together and, yes, singing together the songs of freedom. But Duncan Flanagan says it will come because the truth is stronger than the lie. I want to be optimistic about this as well.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: If you've been looking for a place to revel in wrong think, my friend, you have found it. Pull up a chair. Make yourself comfortable. I've got some great information to share with you this hour that will hopefully inform, inspire, and decisively rip the blinders off so that you can more clearly see the world around you. And it's not because I have all the answers. It's because I am encouraging you and hopefully providing you with tools that will help you think more clearly and independently about the world around us. So much deception every direction you turn. It's essential that you and I become our own fact checkers, become capable of doing our own independent research. And most importantly, we learn how to trust ourselves to discern between fact and fiction, light and darkness, truth and error. Because truth isn't something that's going to be handed to you by some authority figure. It's something you've got to be willing to go after on your own. So with respect to that, I am here to help. The information I present to you is given under no belief that you have to accept it, but simply that uh, this might be worth considering. And if it's something that you find worthwhile, then by all means, adapt it into your thinking. And if not, that's fine too. You're not hurting my feelings at all. Well, as I as I mentioned in the other hour, I I hate that we're still talking about COVID. Right? Wouldn't we just rather put this whole nightmare behind us and yet... The authorities who oversaw the COVID response, you know, they've ended up creating something much worse than the virus, and they are desperately trying to hang on to relevance and trying to hang on to power because the public is beginning to catch on and say, you know what, I've had enough. I'm just not going back. Got a great article here from Jordan Schachtel. He explains that uh, he's, he's an investigative journalist, first and foremost. He's also one of my favorite resources to turn to for a good take on what's going on. He just... Jordan Schachtel has a real knack for cutting through the crap and getting to the heart of the matter. His article is titled the death throes of the public health expert. A fraudulent profession has been exposed to the world. And he says the very concept of public health, once a rather innocuous term is facing a, a, facing an extinction level event. And Americans should be incredibly thankful for this development Jordan says sometimes when people are faced with a grand crisis, a bold new idea or a group of individuals moves humanity forward in ways once thought of as as improbable or uh, not, if not impossible. Sometimes it happens, but he says the elevation of the supposed masters of public health has actually achieved the opposite effect. It's now a term that half of America reacts to with some combination of revulsion and mockery and rightly so. Prior to the pandemic, America's public health experts were rarely heard or seen. In the past, these forces would arise from obscurity to tell us the world is coming to an end, only to be routinely dismissed, forcing them to crawl back underneath the surface. With COVID mania, that all changed. And now that we've seen what this profession is truly about, many long for the days when the insignificance of the public health man is restored to his proper place in society. Pre-2019, the individuals that are relentlessly populating our corporate press and policy circles were just run-of-the-mill collectivists, a collection of over-credentialed and underachieving individuals doing niche research to justify their existence in a variety of academic circles or pushing paper in a government or pharmaceutical bureaucracy. The savior complex they seem to collectively embody had not yet shown its face. Prior to COVID mania, Panic profiteer Eric Ding was co-authoring research papers about diarrhea. Deborah Burks was a no-name bureaucrat giving lectures sponsored by the Gates Foundation about AIDS in Africa. Anthony Fauci was peddling a variety of Ebola-related pharmaceuticals. Some things never change. Pfizer's Scott Gottlieb was doing the same thing, but without a Wall Street Journal column and a weekly national television appearance. And the public health chairs of the various China-funded Ivy League academic departments were lecturing their students about equity and racism and promoting their favorite socialist heroes. But with COVID mania came a rocket ship-like rise to stardom and a level of status that these forces understood as a sanction for them to play Sim City with all of our lives and livelihoods. Every TV broadcast and newspaper interview needed a credentialed public health expert. Because for one reason or another, common sense went flying out the window, and we needed these experts to guide us through a disease that amounted to a varying case of the sniffles for 99% of the population. Yet over the course of COVID mania, Americans grew tired of these self-proclaimed experts of public health and their rabid intrusions upon every fundamental liberty many of us cherish as Americans. Since 2020, the public health cartel has badly exposed itself as nothing more than a dedicated enterprise of political activists and charlatans. In fact, he links to a, to a piece here that he wrote earlier. Um, this was like a year ago on how there is no such thing as a public health expert and there's no such thing as public health Jordan Schachtel says they kept telling us to listen to the science, meaning only the words spoken by a niche group of public health professionals employed in the fields of epidemiology, virology and other suspect disciplines. Modern day public health has a gatekeeping mechanism similar to that of climate science in that there's a core narrative that its experts must sign off on prior to entry into the field. Well, as time went on, more and more Americans came to realize that none of the magical tools endorsed by the public health expert cartel seemed to work to stop our virus problem. Even worse, these supposed virus-killing instruments had tremendous costs. They were destroying lives and livelihoods by the millions and taking a wrecking ball to the fabric of our nation. What is left of the public health expert class is a variety of ridiculous people who, like the last members of a dying cult, are lashing out to justify what's left of their relevance. The entire public health shtick has been exposed as fraudulent. COVID mania showed us that this outfit is largely nothing more than ideological authoritarians, failed statisticians, midwit academics, and the occasional academic MD who advocates via virtue signal for their non-existent patient roster. Good example. Here's Dr. Emily Ricotta, a tweet that she sent out just a couple of days ago, actually just yesterday. In defiance of the mask air force, mand- or, I'm sorry. In defiance of the mask mandate removal, I'm double masked and bringing some sass to the airport this morning. Oh, and sure enough, there she is, wearing her mask and also a shirt. Trust me, I'm an epidemiologist. By the way, I loved the ratio on that tweet. Uh, the first response I saw was, "Hello, irrelevance is calling." <laughs> Jordan Schachtel says the public health people we trusted to solve our virus problem ended up creating a beast infinitely worse than a flu like illness without COVID mania. There would have been able to, they would have been able to continue to operate in the shadows, promoting pseudoscience and radical ideologies to the next generation in the pipeline. But now at least the public health cartel has become unmasked from the perspective of the rational mind. The ideas unleashed into the world by the public health cartel are slowly being swept away into the ash heap of history. And Jordan Schachtel says that's exactly where they belong. I know there may be some people thinking, gee, that's kind of harsh, don't you think? They're uh, throwing some good people under the bus. Well, let me think carefully before I answer that, because I do know good people who are in the practice of medicine. Doctors, nurses, specialists, and the ones who resisted the uh, the politicization, well, they often paid a price. I'm thinking of people like Dr. Scott Atlas, like Dr. John Ioannidis, uh, oh, who was it, Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. Robert Malone. What do these people all have in common? They're pariahs because they deviated from the orthodoxy that everybody else agreed upon, which it turns out was wrong. And it just goes to show you that, you know, even with mantras like trust the science, trust the, follow the science. When the science has been politicized, you can't. Because it's not really science at that point. It's scientism. It's, it's a kind of religion. And I have the deepest respect for those who stood up at a time where it could cost them their career, or it could cost them standing. In some cases, you know, medical doctors have lost their licenses for challenging the conventional wisdom and the popular narrative that was being promoted. But as Jordan Schachtel points out here, it doesn't change the fact that the public health experts, in quotation marks, they were wrong. And I don't know if it's pride or if it's fear of prosecution, like a Nuremberg-type tribunal, that prevents them from owning those mistakes. But they can't do it. They can't say we were wrong or I'm sorry. Maybe you'll find one or two exceptions, but the vast majority, nope, they're going to double down on it and just, nope, nope, nope. What we say goes. And, of course, now we've got, uh, I noticed uh, KSL was fanning the flames. Oh, by the way, chicken flu, avian flu is coming. Don't even go around places where there are birds. Pimping that fear gotta keep us scared cause that's how they keep us controllable I say reject the fear study the issues out for yourself make up your own mind
0: this is the Brian Hyde Show this is The
1: Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you haven't subscribed to my show notes, I'm not saying they're going to answer all the questions of life, but I do a pretty fair amount of research every single day, and I provide links that are there for your You know, Enlightenment, you can follow them. There's plenty of links within the links. Basically, there's a treasure trove of information available. I'm happy to compile that for you and at no charge, make it available to you. All you have to do to subscribe, go to my website, thebrianheidshow.com, click on my show notes, doesn't matter, pick a day, scroll down to the bottom of the day's notes, and there you'll see the big subscribe button. Plug in your email. I will never sell it. I will never share it with anybody else. But I will send you a copy of the show notes each day that I do the show. And therefore, you can, uh, you can sit there and research at your own leisure. And again, there's no implication. You have to agree with everything I'm sending you. I'm just trying to give you the best information I can find that really sheds some light on what's happening around us as well as what you and I can do about it. You know, sometimes I have to marvel at the contempt that the ruling class apparently feels for the common people. Because it's, it's usually hidden behind kind of a paternalistic mask. But as Kit Knightley explains, that uh, mask has been slipping lately. Here's a good example. Rhode Island lawmakers seeking to punish the parents of unvaccinated children. This is from offguardian.org. Kit Knightley writes, A bill recently placed before the Rhode Island legislature contains clauses that would make COVID vaccination mandatory for everyone over the age of 16 and double state income tax for all parents who refused to inject, sorry, wow, good Freudian slip, refused to inject their children with COVID, the experimental COVID vaccines. The bill titled Health and Safety, Immunization Against COVID-19 Act, and introduced by State Senator Samuel Bell, lays it out in Sections one. In, in Section 1A and B, Section A says every person of at least 16 years of age who is eligible for immunization against COVID-19 and who resides in the state of Rhode Island, works in the state of Rhode Island or pays personal income taxes to the state of Rhode Island pursuant to Chapter 30 of Title 44 shall be required to be immunized against COVID-19. Section B says every resident of Rhode Island eligible for immunization against COVID-19 who is under 16 years of age or under guardianship shall be required to be immunized against COVID-19 with the responsibility for ensuring compliance following falling on all parents or guardians with medical consent powers pursuant to subsection 23-4.6 through 1. 6-1 rather. Okay. Then comes the stringent financial penalties. This is the enforcement mechanism. Any person who violates this chapter shall be required to pay a monthly civil penalty of $50 and shall owe twice the amount of personal income taxes as would otherwise be assessed pursuant to Chapter 30 of Title 44. I'm just going to sit back for a second and just kind of let that say, wait, they're going to double their income tax if they don't get their kids vaccinated. Kit Niley says this is by far the most punitive anti-vaxxer legislation we've seen so far. And even if it doesn't pass, it shows us that the COVID agenda is still very real and they are not even close to done trying to bully people into compliance. Now, in the article, you can actually read the whole bill. You can download it if you'd like. What on earth... You either vax your kids or we will make you pay twice what you would normally would be assessed in income tax. I know that's some pretty ugly stuff. And, and you may just dismiss it as, now, Brian, that's just, you know, it's one politician's bill and doesn't even stand that good of a chance. But look, it's out in the open. This is a proposed bill. This is someone has, has with a straight face, put this out as something that ought to be law. You know, and I haven't spent a whole lot of time on, on vaccines. Frankly, there, there are other hosts out there that that's, that's their obsession, and I'll let them run with that ball. But I have to ask you, if the vaccines really work as intended, why is it that so many people who've had the vax still have to go back time and time again for boosters? Why, are, why is it that there's still so many people who've had the vax who still either get or spread? COVID. I mean, look, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm just a guy with with some modicum of common sense. and, and And I'm realizing whatever they said, well, you know, the efficacy of that vaccine. I mean, come on, things that were stated as fact that clearly are not fact. If you get the vaccine, you won't get COVID. That's not true. You can still get it. Not to mention, there are still concerns about the idea that, you know, there there are an awful lot of young people that are suddenly experiencing, you know, heart attacks and heart problems. And I'm talking, you know, people in extremely good physical condition, athletes and the like. I know it's just a weird coincidence and it probably has nothing at all to do with vaccines, but hey. Isn't that strange that, uh, you know, we're we're a year or so into the vaccine being widely rolled out? now we're starting to see this unexplained spike in deaths of people under the age of 60. Again, I'm not suggesting the vaccines, what's causing it, but you have to wonder what changed in the last year. I know Germany sat on statistics. They, they were going to, they, I think they, they shot down a bill that was going to require that everybody over the age of 60 mandated, you know, would have to be vaccinated. And they shot it down, but they, they debated it before they released the numbers about, uh, well, let's first of all figure out how many people already are vaccinated over the age of 65. You know, in Germany, it's over 95% of their population over 65 is vaccinated. If the vaccines are working, why would you have to mandate to get that last, what, 4 point something percent I don't know, something here doesn't add up. First and foremost, you know, it's the opposition, of, it's, it's, it's my opposition to the idea that I have to be coerced into doing something. That makes me very grateful that I have said no at every turn to the COVID vaccine. And yeah, I've had family members tell me, that's you're, you're stupid, that's a death wish. What are you trying to do, kill yourself? I don't see it that way. I don't know what it is, but there's something about the uh, vehemency and the, just the intensity and obsession that so many of these political leaders and, and, and other non-political leaders like Bill Gates and others have had towards getting everybody possible vaxxed up. It's almost maniacal. And the harder they've pushed and the more coercion that's been applied, come on, we asked, we, were, we tried to be nice about it. Well, let's just say that the questions that I had that uh, that initially made me go, eh, I'm not so sure about this, have only been reinforced by what I've seen, not only in terms of the coercion that's been levied against people, jab or job and all, all this kind of stuff, but also the effects that are starting to come out and people having adverse reactions and the, the sheltering of these uh, these pharmaceutical companies, the makers of the vaccines. Oh, well, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll share that information with you in 50 years. And uh, by the way, we have absolute... Uh, you know, protection, no liability whatsoever. Nobody can sue us for this. I mean, you don't have to be a suspicious, conspiracy-oriented individual to go, that seems odd. That seems like it's, it's way uh, out of proportion. So for those who have successfully resisted, first of all, I congratulate you. You know, it's, it's, taken, it's taken some backbone not to give in. And for those who were vaccinated against your will, I'm not going to say, well, you were dumb to do it or you were dumb to give in. I know in many cases people were forced into a situation they absolutely did not want to be in, and they they felt they had no choice but to do it. And I'm very sad that you found yourself in that situation. But I guess what I'm getting at is if you can have a lawmaker in Rhode Island suggesting, well, you're going to do this or else we're going to start hiking your taxes... Where would they draw the line? Maybe you need to be the one to draw the line. And soon.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I would like to encourage you to click on the website of one of my sponsors, that being SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. Look, I'll admit, I, my wife sews. Okay, she's got a nice sewing machine, a nice serger. And I admire her ability to sew things when I need pants hemmed or something like that. It's wonderful that she's able to do that. But it's not something that I aspire to even though occasionally I have to sew a button on here and there, I know that I really don't have skills. But if you are someone who wants to develop those skills or if you know someone who really thrives on being able to sew or embroider or, if they're really serious, do some quilting, like long-arm quilting, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah, is the place to go. Not only do they sell the very best of the best machines, and, and by the way, some of these machines, I mean, they're, they'll rival the cost of a you know entry-level car, in terms of, uh, of cost, but there's also entry-level machines that are, you know, 200 bucks and all the supplies that you need. And here's the most important part, training, teaching you how to use your machine. See, that's the kind of investment that just can't go wrong. And that's why I would like you to, uh, if, you're, if you're thinking about uh, getting into sewing or you know somebody who is into sewing, please consider doing business with sewingandquiltingcenter.com. Got a link in my show notes at com. So with the lifting of the airline mask mandate, I know there was a lot of celebrating, and yet it appears there is also some resistance now, and there's an attempt the CDC is trying to put that mask back on your face. Jeffrey Tucker, writing for the Brownstone Institute, says, What's happening is the ruling class is having a long overdue encounter with the reality that we don't trust them. He says, we know the wicked truth about Chairman Mao's Let a Hundred Flowers Bloom. He said this in 1957 while inviting anyone to criticize the Communist Party. And there were cheers all around and the criticisms were unleashed. That lasted for about six weeks, after which many of the biggest critics were shot. It was a bait and switch. And it's a brilliant tactic for evil regimes. Ferret out the enemy, then make them go away. Now, that's not exactly what happened this week, but the analogy works. A judge in Florida this week struck down the Biden administration's transportation mask mandate. The opinion was highly technical and turned entirely on issues of administrative law. The judge ruled that the Public Health Service Act of 1944, the first ever to give the quarantine power to the federal government, did not authorize the imposition of universal mandates on what's really an article of clothing in the name of sanitation. Instead, what happened to appear what appeared to happen here rather was entirely arbitrary. The Biden administration wanted masks and the CDC imposed them, including with criminal penalties. For a full year, travelers have been hectored and threatened at every turn. After the court decision, a hundred flowers bloomed in the form of airborne celebrations from coast to coast. Will it last? Jeffrey Tucker says not if our rulers in DC get their way he says, but let's be clear about something. It's about masks, but more. The mask is a metaphor for all the controls, restrictions, impositions, mandates, closures, and resulting wreckage of the past two years. People hate them because they are so personal. More precisely, they are depersonalizing, which is precisely how the lockdown period of American history has felt the entire time. We are our faces to ourselves and others. Take that away, and what are we? We're tools. We're pawns. We're lab rats for their experiments. Masks are dehumanizing because they're supposed to be. The mask has a very long history as a tool of subjection and enslavement. We all know this intuitively. Therefore, the opportunity to throw it off was glorious. One evening, an entire nation of travelers celebrated. Celebrating even more were the airline staff, flight attendants, and pilots. They've lived two years in these ridiculous things which have nowhere been proven to work to crush a virus. So emancipation from them was a welcome relief. So too for workers around the country whose interests have been consistently disregarded. We found ourselves in the position of caste-like scenes in restaurants around the country. Customers dining happily while being served by masked workers. And Jeffrey Tucker says this is inconsistent with the democratic and commercial ethos. All the airlines, as well as Amtrak, announced it quickly, perhaps as a way of making it impossible for the Biden administration to roll it back. Even Biden himself said the new rule is that everyone should do what they want. I guess he didn't get the memo. Hold just one minute, someone said in the administration. We need to find out what the Department of Justice says. Well, then the Justice Department immediately kicked it to the CDC because they're in charge of the science. And so we'll wait. The Department of Justice and Centers for Disease Control and Prevention disagree with the district court's decision and will appeal subject to CDC's conclusion that the order remains necessary for public health. The department continues to believe that the order requiring masking in the transportation corridor is a valid exercise of the authority Congress has given CDC to protect the public health. That is an important authority that the department will continue to work to preserve. That's from uh, that's from their press release. So if the CDC concludes that a mandatory order remains necessary for the public's health after that assessment, the Department of Justice will appeal the district court's decision. What's this about? Well, the plaintiff Health Freedom Defense Fund issued a sharp statement. DOJ's statement is perplexing to say the least and sounds like it comes from a health policy advocates or from health policy advocates, rather not government lawyers. The ruling by the U.S. District Court is a matter of law, not CDC preference or an assessment of current health conditions, quote. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says in the early days of the Biden administration, the PR decision at the top was that it would always follow the science, a statement that the new president has said many times. This was supposed to be different from the Trump administration, at least after the summer of 2020, when the CDC lost control over the political side of the executive state. Now, on one hand, following the science sounds good. However, if the science really means the bureaucracies, and hence this slogan is just another way of passing the buck, there's a problem. The bureaucracies are unaccountable and typically default to the safest and changeless route to preserve their power over the population. Jeffrey Tucker says even so, following the DOJ's announcement, there must have been moments of panic at the CDC. They had the hot potato and didn't know what to do with it. So finally, they settled on the usual strategy. They threw it to an anonymous committee. And then the committee came out with a statement unsigned by anyone in particular. Instead of citing the science or claiming that they knew for sure that masks were great for people, the statement started with the following sentence, quote, to protect CDC's public health authority. Notice that doesn't say to protect public health. It says public health authority. Those are certainly different things. In any case, the decision was made. The CDC has asked the DOJ to proceed with an appeal. Ah, there we go. Throw that potato back at a different agency. The CDC has merely asked. So now the DOJ will appeal as forced by the sloganeering of the Biden administration and the deference to the CDC. The results will certainly be terrible for the administration because the next court will agree with the previous court that there was never any legal basis for the mandate in the first place. Now, they could also issue a stay, which would be catastrophic for the Biden administration. Public anger would be out of control. See, Mao got away with this because he had total power. Biden does not. In fact, his poll numbers are awful. Jeffrey Tucker says, I've never seen personally an example of a a sadistic government that's simultaneously politically masochistic. In other words, these people not only do not understand what's good for the country, they don't even know what's good for themselves. The words of the CDC statement are the chilling part. They care about their authority first and foremost, even only. That seems to be the view pervasive in Washington today as a cold civil war heats up between the states with Washington. Every day grows more intense. Every day the conflict becomes more raw and brutal. There seems to be no end in sight because there will be no rollbacks, no apologies, no regrets, no admission that their authority was an overreach all along. Will governments have learned their lesson? Jeffrey Tucker says, look around. We live in a world burdened by extremely arrogant and immovable public agencies that have lost public trust. The administrative state is right now as angry as the public is at them. Now, there's a peaceful solution here, he says, but it doesn't seem to be on the table. Jeffrey Tucker says, if I've learned anything over the last two years, it's about the strange way in which the ruling class is impervious, not only to actual research, but also to the will of the people, even when it shows up in devastating polls. They seem not to regard the celebrations after the judge's decision as uh, not as a corrective, but a challenge to overcome. It's all about authority, not public health, but public health authority. Who's in charge? That's what's really at issue. They say them, we say us. Pretty powerful stuff there. So what do we do? Well, I guess what we do is we put our foot down and we take ownership of ourselves. Does that not sound like a reasonable way to approach things? I know. Well, now we should be in submission to these authorities because they know what's best. Do they really? I mean, can you really look at the last two years and conclude that, yeah, they they absolutely knew what was best? Because I can't make that to determination, <laughs> not based on what I've seen. But anyway, I'm encouraging you to consider, maybe, just maybe, you know what's best for you and the people within your stewardship. More so than Dr. Fauci at all.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. You know, if you're one of the thousands of people relocating to the Intermountain West, I get it. This is a great place to be. It's also uh, the scene of one of the hottest real estate markets that most of us have ever seen in our lifetimes. The average price of a home in Utah and Idaho has just gone through the roof. And that means when you find the home of your dreams, assuming you, you're moving to the Intermountain West, you've got to be ready to pull the trigger now because someone will snap that home up in a big, fat hurry. This is where the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage comes in. Heather has decades of experience in the lending industry, and she clearly understands the ins and outs of what the lenders need, what the borrowers need. She is the one you want on your side to make things happen when time is of the essence. Now, you can call her at 435-703-4522. If you're in St. George, Utah, go to her office at 619 South Bluff Street. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender I haven't spent a lot of time talking about uh, the growing fixation on gender identity and politics in our government schools but I'm going to go there today with the understanding that it makes some people nervous oh Brian this is uncomfortable and and some people still look at it as well if you're coming out in opposition to you know teaching children inclusion and tolerance and equity and all this that somehow that is an expression of hatred toward an oppressed minority I don't agree with that assessment. I think there are actually some very powerful arguments to keep trans-ed out of our schools. This is one of the reasons that uh, libs of TikTok found themselves in hot water, not only from Twitter, but also from, you know, investigative journalists, I'm sorry, hit-man journalists from the Washington Post going after them because they're challenging the orthodoxy, not so much by by pointing out, you know, well, here's here's the counter-argument, but by simply promoting content already made public by the very same rainbow-haired people who are teaching in public schools and saying, oh, I think it's wonderful to discuss sex with my six-year-olds. Or the middle school teacher in Oklahoma who is like, F your parents, I'm your parent now. Now I realize that's that's not a majority of teachers. But the fact that such attitudes exist at all within the public education realm should be deeply concerning. I've got an article here from intellectualtakeout.org. This is from Betsy McCaughey. Powerful arguments to keep trans-ed out of the schools. She says school districts are embroiled in a battle over whether to teach children from kindergarten to third grade about being transgender. Advocates recommend teachers read their young students introducing Teddy a book about a boy teddy bear who transitions to be a girl, calling it a heartwarming story about being true to yourself. See, trans advocates make changing gender sound like it's a cakewalk. It's, of course, easier for teddy bears than it is for people. But for honest answers on what belongs in public schools, follow the science, no pun intended there, and the U.S. Constitution. First, the science. A staggering 99% plus of the population do not have the physical traits that cause someone to become... Transgender people with gender dysphoria, a condition that causes extreme distress, deserve empathy and respect. But only 0.6% of the adult population have it. That's according to UCLA's Williams Institute, which is an LGBTQ advocacy group. A classroom lesson proposed for New Jersey six year olds called Pink, Blue, and Purple says children should be taught that you might feel like you're a girl. Even if you have body parts that some people might tell you are boy parts. No matter how you feel, you're perfectly normal. Normal? No. It is a rare condition. Most gender dysphoria manifests in early childhood, according to a 2020 study at Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. So, guidance counselors and teachers should be trained to offer families help, but there's no reason to incorporate it into the curriculum. Inviting children to choose their pronouns and confusing the 99% who don't have the condition. Now, the Human Rights Campaign and other LGBT, LGBTQ advocacy groups ignore this science and insist that someone with boy parts can become a girl and vice versa. And these groups are teaming up with the National Education Association to steamroll schools into dis- disseminating this false claim even designating national reading days when school kids are indoctrinated with lessons about transgender characters, like those in the books I Am Jazz or Born Ready, The True Story of a Boy Named Penelope. Betsy McCaughey says scientists are still debating actual causes, but a consensus is emerging that people with gender dysphoria have a brain structure that does not match their genitalia at birth. Transgender individuals process the sex hormones, estrogen and androgen, differently from other people. According to Exeter University researchers, gender dysphoria is caused by androgen insensitivity syndrome, where the testosterone receptor is mutated and faulty and thus cannot function. Now the LGBTQ community is adamant this condition not be labeled mental illness. When the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual used by the American psychiatrist was updated in 2013, gender identity disorder was changed to gender dysphoria. Trans advocates want greater acceptance. But instructing young kids that it's normal for boys to become girls and vice versa is going too far. And parents rightly fear their kids are being groomed. In the last two decades the proportion of minors saying they are transgender has soared to 1.8%. Gender dysphoria used to be a condition experienced primarily by young boys. Now it suddenly has shifted to teenagers born female. Brown University's Lisa Littman calls this social contagion, meaning teenage girls are mimicking their friends and claiming to be transgender without displaying the classic signs of gender dysphoria that emerge in early childhood. Betsy McCauhey says children need to be protected from gender hysteria and moving headlong into transitioning. So what does the Constitution say? We have the freedom to practice our own religion. Many Christians and Jews believe God created man and woman. They don't want their kids indoctrinated in a belief system that claims a person born with boy parts can become a girl. Parents in Ludlow, Massachusetts are suing to stop the public school from teaching transgenderism. And they're likely to win. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit ruled on March 30th of 2021 that Ohio could not force a public university teacher to address transgender students using their chosen pronouns rather contrary to the teacher's Christian beliefs. And here's the harshest truth that, that you'll hear from this article, and that is transgender advocates have a right to their views. What they don't have is a right to force them on everyone. I mean I I remember watching as this started to become an issue and thinking, yeah, you know, common sense is gonna prevail. And I deeply underestimated how effective LGBTQ plus advocates would be in using guilt to try to persuade people that hey, these are these are poor oppressed minorities, you, you have to accommodate them and you have to play along and you have to be a part of, you know what whatever, you know, their their fantasy is. And I'm not trying to dismiss or minimize the confusion or the pain or the struggle that some people may have. But to pretend that it's normal and to pretend that it's it's a normal thing to be talking kids who are very, very young into, oh, yes, yeah, you know, you need to be working on transitioning and you need to be taking puberty blockers and so forth. To me, that just seems evil. Because it's forcing permanent solutions or semi-permanent solutions on on a kid that uh, isn't old enough to really be making those kinds of decisions. And to say it's being done in the name of compassion or that anybody who opposes it is just doing it out of a sense of hatred? No. I think I've mentioned my wife is a public school teacher. And we live in a rural area. This is not, you know, some, you know, hip, you know, inner city, urban place where there's lots of sophisticated metropolitan, you know, cosmopolitan thinking going on here. There's just good down to earth people, and yet there are a surprising number of kids who, you know, if they don't, if they don't do the full on, yep, I'm doing the complete switcheroo here, nonetheless, like to identify as non-binary and look again i'm I'm no mental health expert i I wonder especially where you're dealing with with you know junior high kids if this is just part of that little flapping of those fledgling wings and trying to to exert you know some identity and and maybe even trying to get some attention and validation, but I don't think this is just you know it's a harmless phase, and you know they'll they'll just grow out of it the The advocacy for this and the idea that it has to be a part of public school curricula is really disturbing. Because no matter how you slice it, I mean, you know, you can you can agree, disagree, but the bottom line is most states still have truancy laws. Most states still mandate you have to, by law, send your kids to public school or receive some kind of a waiver saying that, you know, my kid is not going to attend public school. That means there is a captive audience there. And if there are advocates who are trying to create little radicals Starting with, you know, gender identity issues. Looks to me like they're taking advantage of that captive audience. Maybe it's time to pull your kids out or at least put your foot down and say, this stuff does not belong in our schools. This is The Brian Hyde Show.